Good morning, everybody. I come to share the Bible readings with you today, and the first reading is from Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11, 17 to 40. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews here uh, gives us a, a quick history, a summary of God's faithfulness through the generations. From verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was near, sorry, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains of imprisonment, They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. And the second reading is from Luke. And it's around the time that Jesus 
well, it was the time when Jesus came in on a donkey that Bill was referring to. Luke 19, 41 to 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of God. There we go. I was going to say my voice was going to get a bit strained by the end of this. Uh, well, uh, as I was saying, it's good to be with you. Uh, my name's Jonathan. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to catch up with you after the service. Uh, it's uh, my privilege to be speaking to you this morning from God's Word from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 40. Uh, a wonderful chapter, a famous chapter in all of Scripture, uh, and a great way to come to understand uh, the history of God and his, dealing with his dealings with his people. I uh, want to say a special welcome to those of you who are joining us online, uh, and a special welcome to those of you who are visiting us today. Uh, for those of you online, I realize many of you may normally have been here, but floods and isolation and COVID has kept you away. We want you to know we miss you, and we look forward to worshiping with you again soon, hopefully next Sunday uh, at Easter, uh, or just in a few days on Good Friday. Uh, we are working through a series through the book of Hebrews, and we've titled this series Seeing Jesus. It's because the writer to this, the writer or the speaker of this epistle is trying to uh, call forth faith out of his hearers so that they wouldn't, they wouldn't throw away the confidence that they've had. And his method of doing this is trying to present to them the wonder of the work that Christ has done. And he's done that in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And we've seen Jesus' role as our uh, king and priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. As we come to chapter 11, though, our uh, author is highlighting for us, he's, he's raising for us the virtue of faith. You see, one way to, to, to try to persuade people is to take an idea and to celebrate it. You know, as parents, we often do this uh, with our children and with virtues around things like honesty or justice. And we say, look, look at the value of being honest. And we say, look at this person, look at that person. Look at all these different things that happened because they were an honest person. Or you might do it with something like, uh, yeah, frugalness or 
saving. Um, this is what we do. Well, our author in chapter 11 is, is highlighting the virtue of faith. And this morning in particular, we're going to see that this is a faith that forsakes the earthly city. In verse 16 of chapter 11, uh, we read about how God is, was preparing a city for Abraham. Uh, and Abraham is, is an example of those who have looked at life on this earth, life in the world, and said, this is not my home. But to make your home in the city of God involves a separation. It involves a departing, a forsaking, if you will, of the earthly city. And that's the subject of these verses here. Last week, we saw that faith finds its home where God is. Uh, if, if you're finding your home in this world, then uh, you are missing out on what it means to dwell with God. You're, you're missing the promises, the import of that. And our big idea this morning is that faith trades earth for heaven. Biblical saving faith trades earth for heaven. It's an exchange that takes place. Faith is trading on the unseen. And this is something that we're going to see in these examples today. But I want you to keep that in mind. Faith trades earth for heaven. I got to go to Canberra this week with uh, the year six kids at, at my kids' school, and we, got to, we were down there for three days, and I got to do something this time that I'd never done before. I visited the Australian Mint, and it was a fascinating time. I'd never been to, I don't think I've ever been to any Mint before, um, but it was fascinating to learn the history of currency and the history of coins. And the, the, the guide at one point made, made a very obvious but also a very profound statement. He said, you know, there were certain coins that they didn't make anymore, because it costs more to make the coin than the coin was worth. And he said something every businessman knows, which is you don't, <laughs> you don't pay to make something that is worth less than what it costs you to make it. In speaking of spiritual realities, missionary Jim Elliott would say something very similar along these lines. He would say, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he could never earn. He is no fool who would give what he cannot keep to gain what he could never earn. If it's foolish to, 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 to make coins that cost more to produce than they're actually worth in the transaction, then it's infinitely wise to give up something that you cannot hang on to in order to secure something that you can have forever especially when that is of surpassing value. And this is the logic of faith that's inherent in these examples. The big idea through this text is that faith trades earth for heaven. And so our big question is a question that Jesus asked. What is a soul worth? What value would you put on a soul? To use Jesus' language in the Gospels, he would say, what will you give in exchange for your soul? What would you pay to keep it? What would you pay to have it? To gain it? I want this question to, to just sort of linger with us as we consider what the scripture has to say. The context, as I was stating earlier, in Hebrews 11, our author praises the virtue of faith. 
for the people of God so that we might hold on to our trust in Christ to the very end. You see, to understand the book of Hebrews, you need to understand that he's talking to people who, who have not, who've not given up the faith, but, but they've instead become fairly complacent and fairly, and fairly settled that, that our, our author, our speaker, is, is concerned that they're about to do that. They're about to, to regress. They're, gonna, they're about to go back into the world and, and let go of Christ, for, forsake the hope they have. Whether it's by going back into uh, the rituals of the law, which, which had already been fulfilled by Christ, or whether it's by going back into the world. And we've seen up to this point, verses 1 to 7 describe the nature of faith. Verses 8 to 16 talk about the mindset of faith. And here in verses 17 to 40 to the end of the chapter, there's a real focus on the, the triumph of faith. What, what's the reward of it all? And, and that's, that's the focus here. This section is concerned less with defining what faith is or, or talking about fr- uh, from a subjective position what it, what it looks like to, to, to feel faith. And, and this instead, or excuse me, not feel faith, but act in faith. Here, it describes what's the outcome of it all? What's, what's the reward? What's the result of it all? Now, this is important for us because, as we said earlier, faith is trading in the unseen, if God's calling us to pledge ourselves in trust to him and to walk in the here and the now in a way that's different than what we might want or what our flesh might desire, what we might find comfortable or secure, if God is calling us to walk in that path and all we have is his promise, then we need to understand the outcome of our pledge, the outcome of our trust in Christ. And this is what's highlighted for us. In terms of overview, just to give you your your bearings in this passage, um, the author is going to trace the history of God's people as he offers a, a sort of a cost-benefit analysis. Some of you took economics, right? I don't remember much from economics, but I do remember that. this cost-benefit analysis. And that's what he's doing as he goes through the history of God's people. It's this cost-benefit analysis of faith to show the surpassing worth of our trust in God. He's trying to show them you, are, you have something that's valuable. You may think it's not valuable, but it's incredibly valuable, so hold on to it. And he goes through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then he goes through Moses and the Exodus, and then he goes through Rahab and the conquest, and finally there's sort of this great summary at the end, which summarizes the the heroes he doesn't have time to, to speak on in detail, then and us now. With that, let's pray as we ask God's help. Father, we know that without you, we can do nothing. Lord, we know that you have come to reveal yourself to us and that you have done that in Jesus and specifically through his work on the cross. So Lord, we pray today that you would enable us through the power of your spirit to walk in faith, to continue and to persevere in faith. Lord, would you be speaking to us? Lord, may you not fill our minds with the thoughts of today or what our plans might be after this. May, may you not fill our thoughts with even our own opinions, but may our, our minds and our hearts be, be filled with the truth of your word. You say your spirit is a consuming fire. And so we pray, Lord, that you, 
like a fire, would consume all of the debris that we've accumulated throughout this week. Lord, and that we might burn, that our faith might be refined. Lord, this is only a work that you can do. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our outline this morning is to understand the value that God places upon our trust or our faith. To understand the value God places on this, we're going to look at this section of Hebrews 11 under the heading of four economic terms. So maybe this trip to the mint impacted me too much. Uh, don't, uh, if you're not into economics, I apologize. Don't focus on the economic terms. Focus on the, the theological, spiritual truth. But if for those of you who, who, who like to have sort of mental hooks, maybe this will help you. Four economic terms, scarcity. And here we're going to look at faith, faith under the crucible. Secondly, currency. And here we're going to see faith as, as an exchange. Thirdly, the cost, what, what faith gives up. And finally, the benefit, what faith gets back. So scarcity, faith under the crucible. Currency, faith as an exchange. Cost, what faith gives up or lets go of. And benefit, what faith gets back. Let's consider our first point. Scarcity. Scarcity is the principle that there is a limit to a certain number of resources. Uh, and that is what drives decisions of value. If there was an infinite supply of things, then they would have no value. But because there are things in life that are scarce, be they natural resources or be they things like time, scarcity has an important role to play. Hebrews eleven seventeen to 40 shows us that faith itself, genuine saving faith, is something that God treats as a resource that is scarce. It is valuable. It's not, it's not ubiquitous in its genuine, worshipful sense. And here we're going to see that the object of a soul's faith will be revealed in the crucible of life. The crucible is a testing. It's a, scientifically, if you are going to, to separate elements or minerals or you, you want to refine, you put them in a container which is literally called a crucible. And this, 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 it's this container that, that can undergo intense heat and the contents that are within the crucible itself will be changed by the heat so that a new element or a changed element emerges from this heat, this testing process. But most of us know the term crucible in terms of a more of a metaphorical sense, a severe trial, a severe testing. These verses show us that faith is valuable because it is limited. In other words, not everyone has faith. You'll see that priceless faith emerges from fiery trials. We read this in the very beginning in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when tested, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Note that God tested him. Peter would write that the proven genuineness of our faith is more valuable than gold and any precious material. 
Faith that endures the test, faith that endures the trial is precious. It's limited. It's not ubiquitous. Not everyone has this kind of faith. And so our choice, our cho- excuse me, our choices reveal where our trust lies. And so obedience becomes this thing that, that proves our faith genuine. If you think about Abraham's situation, everything that God had promised him hinged on this child Isaac. And Abraham is put in a position where he's asked to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, to literally give him up. The means that he was told that the promise would be fulfilled through his son Isaac, those means he was then asked to surrender, to let go of, to offer to God in an act of obedience, not not in order to get the promise. He wasn't told, if you do this, you will get the promise. He was simply commanded to do it. In some ways, this faith, this testing of Abraham, you could almost say is is probably one of the, the most severe tests a person's faith could undergo. And yet the report of Abraham is that he didn't linger over whether or not he would do this, but rather he proceeded in trust. And his reasoning went something like this. Well, if God asks me, I'm going to do it because I trust God. If God asks, I'm going to do it. Is that, is that our response? If God asks me, I'm going to do it. Most of us, and I definitely include myself in this category, if God asks me, I'm going to think about it. <laughs> if God asks me, I'm going to pray on it. If God asks me, I'm going to try to solve it and work around it. But here, God asked him, and Abraham said, God, if you ask me, I'm going to do it. When Isaac, his own son, is looking at him saying, where's the wood for the sacrifice? Well, me, where's the animal for the sacrifices? He's loading the wood. Abraham says, God's going to provide it. He tells his attendants, he says, we're going to go up the mountain. In three days, we're going to come back. In Abraham's mind, his, his reasoning by faith is that God's word will come to pass. God's word must be obeyed. It must be fulfilled. I will obey. And if God has to bring this child back from the dead, well, he can do it. He effectively says, that's God's problem. Can I tell you what tremendous freedom there is to be had when you are able to reason your way by separating what God has asked you to do from what God has said he will do. And let God do the things that he said he will do. Don't try to figure it out or fix it for him. Don't try to scheme around it. Don't don't try to create the perfect environment, the perfect scenario that God's going to do. You see, Abraham had already tried that. You see, he got tired of waiting. He got tired of lingering and wondering, when's this promise going to come to pass? And he had a conversation with his wife, and they said, you know what, maybe it's actually not going to be through you, but but maybe I'll father a child through, through your maidservant, who was effectively your property. And that's how Ishmael came to be. And God said, I'm not going to bring my promise through Ishmael. You see, there is a testing that goes on. And by this time, Abraham, when put to the test, he trusts 
God implicitly. And he says, God's given me this promise. He's going to deliver on that promise. If he doesn't, that's on him. That's not on me. But he's asked me to do this. And so I'm going to walk in obedience in this direction. Even if it means doing the unthinkable. Our choices will reveal where our trust lies. Thankfully, God is patient and gracious. And you and I, we may fail a test, but don't be surprised if it comes back. Because what God is cultivating in us is faith. He's cultivating in us a trust. And if you think about dwelling with God for all eternity, you're going to need that trust, aren't you? You're going to need a relationship with him that's based on your belief that he is good and that he will do as he says and he will bring about peace. So there's a scarcity to faith. And when we're tested, the things that we, are, that things that we rely on, the objects of this faith will be revealed in the crucible of life. You and I will be tested. Things will get hot. There will be trials that will, that will separate and, and, and reveal what we're leaning on. I wonder what you and I are leaning on today. The second heading <laughs> to help us see the value of faith is, is currency. Currency is really just a, a, a system. It, it's a system of exchange. Basically, everyone agrees that we're going to assign a certain value to this note or to this coin, and, and that, will, that will act as something that we will hold in pledge. If somebody says, bake me a cake, and you say, I'll do it if you give me $20, and you take their $20, that $20 is really just a note. It's really just a piece of paper. It really isn't anything. It's not flour, sugar, eggs, water, whatever you put in the cake. That person has the goods. You are holding a piece of paper. It's currency. Someone, some higher authority has to set the value of the currency. And in the kingdom of God, faith involves a transaction of trust. And God reckons value in faith. Obedience is our pledge of trust. Obedience is our, almost the currency of our faith. God's word becomes the promissory note that, that he says he will do what he will do. But faith is valid only as long as we hold it. If you look through this series of examples that we find here in Hebrews 11, there's so many, aren't there? So many powerful examples. I want to encourage you to take some time this week, go through chapter 17, uh, chapter 11, verses 17 to 20, uh, 40, and look through and see all the places where someone is hanging on to, is perceiving, or is receiving something that is intangible. Perhaps the greatest in this, and, and this is in a number of different places, but perhaps the greatest is in the account of Moses, where after he'd grown up in Pharaoh's household, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He's got a cushy life in the palace. He's got everything. He's got power. He's got wealth. He's got privilege. Who gives up privilege these days? Is anybody giving up privilege these days? 
Isn't that what we're all scrambling for? Privilege. But here, Moses, he rejects this. Instead, he chose to be mistreated. Who's doing that? He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking, looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Listen to this. He persevered. That's what the writer's calling for. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Moses saw the invisible God. How on earth does that make any sense? Now you begin to understand what I mean when I say faith is trading in the unseen. The unseen with physical eyes, but Moses perceived God in a way where he knew him. He knew he was real. He knew he existed. He knew he would reward what he said he would reward. And he knew it was better to be on God's side, to be with the captain of the Lord and his army. It was better to be with God and his people who were being enslaved and mistreated than it was to have a fine place at the table at Pharaoh's banquet hall. You see, he is taking the word of God like a promissory note. And he's walking in obedience. God looks at that and he says, there is value in that. How easy would it have been for Moses to think, you know, think of all the good that I could do here. Think of all the good that I could do in, in, in Pharaoh's household. I was at a dinner party recently and somebody asked me, they said, how did you get into ministry? And I told them my story. I apologize, but I'll, I'll share mine a little bit with you now. Apologies if you already heard it. I was born again in high school, came to faith. I had a knowledge of God, but, but I, I, I came to encounter him when I was in year nine, somewhere between year nine and 10. And in that time, my life began to get flipped upside down. My priorities started changing. I, I had a hunger for the word of God, a desire to be with his people, a joy in praising him. This new life was happening in me and my life began to change and I began to be filled with this great desire to have an impact for the kingdom of God, to let other people know and to see God's righteousness spread throughout the land. I wanted to be used for him. Maybe you identify with that feeling. And then I reasoned. I thought, I know what I'll do with my life. I will put myself in the path of power. I will climb the ladder as high as I can climb. And so I decided I wanted to go into politics. And I learned that if you want to be a good politician, it's often helpful to become a lawyer. And so I went, I studied political science, and then I went to work at a law firm. And, and, and I was working for someone who, in my mind, had the platform that I wanted. You see, I thought I had to affect the kingdom of God from a position of earthly power. And God in his grace, he showed me the emptiness of that reasoning. As I watched a man who for 70, 80 hours a week was a slave to the mechanics of society, to becoming a standout lawyer, so that for five minutes, perhaps, maybe, he would be allowed to speak about his faith. 
You see, it's easy for us to think that in order to be used of God, we need to be elevated by man. In order to be used of God, we need to have our our hands on the levers of power. How tempting it would have been in Moses to watch his own kin, to watch his own people being mistreated and to say, I'm in a position to do something about that. But then to realize, if I stay where I am, if I stay in Pharaoh's house, if I continue to eat at his table, even though there might be great uses for that power, but that was not worth it. That that ultimately was not a step of faith, but that was a step of human reasoning and instead choosing to bear the disgrace that God's people bore. It's so much better to stand with God. Stand with God. I'm not saying quit your secular job or you know, any of that stuff. Nothing wrong with, with work. But what is the step of faith for you? You see, it's so easy for us to lean in to worldly wisdom, to lean in to human comfort. Or in the language of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, to lean on our own understanding and say, this is how I'm going to get that accomplished. Charles Swindoll, in his book on the life of Moses, I really encourage you to read. It's a fantastic book. Charles Swindoll, he, he has two chapters in the book. One early on describing Moses' attack, attack on the Egyptian when he kills the Egyptian. It's called God's Will, My Way. <laughs> and he's got a great chapter later in the book when, when Moses is being called back to Egypt from Midian after he encounters God through the burning bush. And that chapter is titled, God's Will, God's Way. Faith trades in the currency of obedience. Obedience is a pledge of our trust beyond our perception of the unseen. Moses is a great example of this, but he's not the only one. There's others who are constantly in this chapter seeing value. You think about Joseph and who, who God had brought to Egypt and how... He had provided for his family. And and in the height of his power, in the height of the, the, the provision, Moses, excuse me, Joseph says, he effectively makes his children swear to carry him out when they go out. He hadn't lost sight of the promise of God. Faith, this perceiving of things that are not seen. But it's only valid as long as it's held. You see, if I let go of that $20 that you gave me for the cake that I made you, and by the way, you don't want a cake that I will ever make you, okay? I'll I'll happily try if you really want one, but you wouldn't want to eat it, okay? (laughs) But if, if I took that $20 and I just left it on a bench, I've effectively let go It's of no use to me anymore. I'm not holding it. If you and I let go of our faith, if we let go of our pledge, of our obedience, effectively, we lose. We lose all the things that we've seen. Thirdly, what's the cost? 
You see, in the transaction of trust, faith gives up earthly goods as losses. Faith is costly by earthly means. I love how the Bible is completely honest with you about this. One problem we have in the Western church is we've bought so much into the individualist mentality, the individualist mindset that we've allowed that to corrupt our presentation of the gospel. And so while the gospel is good news for the individual, we often leave out some of the realities that following Jesus may mean putting yourself in the path of discomfort, putting yourself in the path of cost. Jesus was happy to use this language. He would say, count the cost. Weigh it up. Because following him is going to cost us something. Faith inevitably means forsaking things that may secure us in this world. And the costs, if we look through this chapter, they vary between physical costs, social costs, identity costs. Uh, There's a great paper by a scholar named Moffat who... uh, to my understanding, argues that the culmination, the culmination, the climax of these examples is actually Rahab. She's the high watermark. Often through history, she's been regarded in this list as a bit of an afterthought, but she's the high watermark. You say, why is that? Let's think about it. Number one, she was not part of the chosen people. She didn't have the benefit of, of the patriarchs and the stories and, 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 and the, the faith of her fathers, as you would say. Secondly, her identity was entirely rooted in a condemned city. She, in order to follow God, in order to act in faith, she has to be disloyal to her own people. She has to forsake her own city, her own family, her own friends. She welcomes in the spies who will destroy her town. That takes faith. You see, she put everything on the line when she received those spies in. Effectively, the moment she welcomed them in, she was changing her allegiance from the condemned city that she was in to the heavenly city, to the kingdom of God. And through this, she was not killed. She even had to continue risking her life after she received the spies by hanging the cord out the window. If you remember the story from perhaps Sunday school, after she received the spies, they, they, they said, you need to hang this cord out the window as a pledge of faith. And in doing that, she risked the retribution of those who might have found out and might have killed her. Just like so many Christians around the world today are risking retribution by having a public faith. Even if it's not walking around the streets with a sandwich board over your head. But she risked it. There was a cost. Look at the things that that needed to be sacrificed. Abraham had to to let go of, uh, he had to basically undergo trauma 
his own personal trauma and officially letting go of his son to the point where he's holding a knife over his son. Think about what it would take for you to do that. We've talked about Moses, but what about his parents? Defying the king by not destroying their child. The people who marched around Jericho. Think about the people in in the summary section. I'll just read it for you again. After talking about the, the benefits and the rewards, the, our author finishes with, with the cost, actually, with, with what was given up. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Jeremiah was dropped in a well full of sludge. If it wasn't for the intervention of other people, he would have died in a hole in the ground. Tradition has it that other prophets were 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 put into a hollowed-out log and then sawn in two. Others were tortured, refusing to be released. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. Well, yeah, but didn't they have a great life? No, they didn't. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Sign me up. Who's going to sign up for that? Let's make two lines. Over here, everyone who wants to be destitute, mistreated, homeless. Over here, everyone who wants to be treated well, who wants to be secure, who wants to have all this. Let's make two lines. Which is going to be longer? It's not even close. But, but... The Bible says the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. They did all of this without actually being able to cash in their faith. They couldn't cash it in yet. They didn't get to hold the promise. They didn't get to eat the cake. They didn't get to enter the land. They didn't get to savor it yet. All they had was the promise. They didn't even get to go to the teller. It's like winning at the craps table in Las Vegas or wherever you go in this country to gamble and not being able to cash in the chips at the end of the day. They didn't get the promises. It's important that we recognize this, brothers and sisters, because Jesus knows, the apostles knew, the prophets knew, God has been very upfront that to live as a follower of him in this world, will entail some sort of suffering. Now, it doesn't mean all of you are going to be martyred for your faith. But when God asks you to do something that is different than the comfort that you would experience with the world, he's not there saying to you, now I know we didn't really talk about this. Look, I know I said I'd forgive your sins, but can I just do this one more thing? Can I just take that away from you too? No. God's saying, trust me. Trust me. You may have to give something up, 
because you're walking the path that I'm on. But it is worth it. Keep walking. Don't turn around. Don't sit down by the side of the road. Don't sit there and get caught off looking at what's happening on the wide road and the broad path over there where people are driving Cadillacs and they're sitting there sipping Mai Tais and just having a grand old time. Don't get caught focused on that. God's saying, yes, I know this road is hard. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, it will cost you something. Yes, they're laughing at you. They're mocking you. They're throwing stones at you. Yes, yes, yes. We know this, but keep going. Don't be afraid of the cost. Why? Because the benefit is infinitely greater. What does faith get back? In the transaction of trust, faith gets back what could never be attained. God looks at our faith and he puts a price on it. There is a value in it. And that faith is worth things that human beings cannot accumulate on their own. You can't earn a standing in heaven. You can't become an heir of righteousness. You, 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 can't, you can't even earn relationship with God. You can't have fellowship with him without faith. Without this trust. As Jim Elliott said, you're no fool to give up what you cannot keep to gain what you can never earn. This this rings through out this chapter. Moses choosing to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, verse 25. Verse 26, regarding disgrace for the sake of Christ of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Faith sees, it perceives the reward of trusting God and walking in his way and it says, I don't care how much money you want to give me, I don't care how much privilege you could, you could share with me, I don't care what this relationship might offer, what this addiction might offer, I don't care what... Wh- how great a life I can get. Nothing is going to be compared with this reward. As Paul would say, I do not consider our present sufferings worth even comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Do you hear that? Paul says, you want to stack up our suffering, in other words, our losses. Let's stack up our losses with the benefits. Paul's like, don't even bother bringing out the scale. You don't even have to weigh it up. It's not even worth comparing. It's so overwhelmingly worth it. Christian, it's worth it. Faith is the means of securing what otherwise cannot be saved, our souls. God will give you your soul. He'll give it life. He'll give it peace. He'll give it a resurrected body. He'll give it unspeakable joy. You see, God's blessings encompass all realms. Right now, you and I, you and I are already blessed with every blessing there is to be had in the heavenly realms. If you're a follower of Jesus today, if you put your trust in Christ, you're, you're, you are already a possessor of your reward in heaven. 
Your life is with Christ. You are seated with him. You're actually reigning, co-reigning with him, spiritually with him. But we haven't even begun to talk about what he begins to do now in, in, in a physical sense. You look at the beginning part of this list. Look what people do. Through faith, they conquer kingdoms. They administer justice. They gain what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of flames, escape from the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed their enemies. You will not accomplish anything as significant or as lasting in this life as what God will accomplish through you as you trust him. Some of you have been healed of diseases. Some of you have been freed from addiction. Some of you have been have experiencing restored relationships. Some of you know a peace you've never even known. You, you've endured trials that are unthinkable and that have forced many, many others to collapse. And yet you're still here. You're still breathing. You're still living. You're still joyful. You're still walking with the Lord. Why? Because you're fantastic? No, because the one you trust is able. Because his Power is perfect in your weakness. And because he will not allow anything to separate you from his love. You see, it's all bound up in him. And if faith is your connection to him, if your trust in him is the means by which you participate in this new covenant relationship, if you forsake that faith, you're forsaking everything. His blessing encompasses this life and the next. Look with me at verses 39 and 40. These were all commended for their faith. All these people, God looks at them. We read about them in the scriptures. They're celebrated for their trust in God because they've counted on him. They've leaned on him. They've taken his word as pledge and they said, I will keep this. I will keep this word. They were commended for this faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Notice there's a reason for this, verse 40. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. You see, suddenly the windows open here to realize why they've been holding on this promise. God's been delaying their enjoyment of this promise. The reason it's been held back is so that you and I can join in with them. So that we can all share together. We can all be made complete together. That their faith would be vindicated just as my faith is vindicated. Which is why Paul would write in Romans chapter 4, he says, Abraham is our father. If you're a Jew, yes, you could trace your lineage to Abraham. But if you're not a Jew, he's still your father if you have faith. Why? Because you're following in his steps. The feet that set out from Ur, the feet that walked through Canaan, the hands that let go of the riches of the king of Sodom, all of those are your feet and your hands, your faith. If you continue... And God has planned something better. 
we get to enjoy that promise. The vindication, the triumph of Christ, the Christ who would identify with the suffering of his people, who would bear their shame and disgrace. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. That same Jesus who sympathizes with our weaknesses is the Jesus who's ruling and is reigning right now. And he says, plant your flag with me. Pledge your trust to me. There's a scarcity to faith. Not everybody has it. God's going to test it to reveal whether it's there or not. There's a currency of faith. Faith, faith is, is transacted through, through obedience. We, we show our faith through our obedience to the word of God. There's a cost to that in terms of our worldly life. Faith looks like a depreciating asset. Why, why would you continue being a Christian? I read a tweet this week that said, people who get married in their, 20s, in their mid-20s are like people who leave a party at 8 p.m. What a cynical world we live in. And you could probably fill out hundreds of thousands of different things the world would say about the righteousness of God. That's not a dig on people who are not married. It's saying the world's mindset is get what you can out of life. Take what you can whether that's pleasure from another person, whether that's money from your company, whether it's social capital, reputation, basically suck everything you can out of life. God says, I am life. Stay attached to me. The benefits are amazing. I would love to be known as someone of whom this world was not worthy. Not because of me, but because it meant I saw the treasure. I saw the reward of the kingdom. What would I give in exchange for my soul? It's a question each of us should be thinking about. Do I have a price? Just a warning. If you know in your heart of hearts there's something you'd give your soul for, you may get tested because God who made your soul he would have you exclusively as his own and if there's something in the way of that it may get tested just some questions to ponder this week do God's promises drive our decisions the choices that I make, am I making it with eternity in mind? Do I, do I have the mindset of a Joseph who, who in the midst of the, the enjoyment of a blessing in a foreign land would say, no, 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 you're going to leave this place. I haven't set you up. There's a better home and a better country. Where is my faith issuing in obedience? Where, where does my trust in God actually play itself out in my life? Are there areas where this is true? Can I encourage you, if you're, a, if you're a, a person who's more mature in the faith, share these examples with a younger person. Tell them the decisions that you make because you trust God. How that impacts your life. What price am I asked to pay for identifying with Jesus and his kingdom? We need to be able to count the cost. And finally, be thinking about how is Jesus vindicating, even right now, how is he vindicating my trust in him? 
What have I tasted of his blessing? As the worship band makes their way up to finish our service in song, I was struck by these pictures of the mint when you walk when you walk along the hallway and you see they have a picture of the blanks. The the coins before they're actually turned into proper currency, <laughs> before they're turned into anything of value. And and you look at it and you say, This just looks like a bit of metal. And if you actually assess its value on the earthly market, it's not really it's not really worth much. It doesn't cost much to make a coin. It only, it only takes its value when it's, when it's stamped. It only takes its value when it's pressed, when it's marked. Your faith probably looks to the world like you're just blank, like it doesn't have any value. But the Spirit of God is marking you is marking you as his own. And in that marking, your faith, your, your, your trust takes on incomparable value. So let's not give it up. Father, would you help us to walk in obedience with you? Help us to trust you and to rest in you. Thank you, Jesus, that you finished the work and that we simply have to keep your word. Or not keep it in the sense of establish our own righteousness, but just hold fast to you. I pray that Windsor District Baptist Church is a place filled with people who, who hold fast to you. May we be like a group of sheep huddled so closely near the shepherd so that we don't wander. We ask this in your name. Amen.